Amen. Thank you, Brett. Well, good morning, everybody. So I thought I'd lead with this. I'm going to lead with a correction. Uh, I don't often do this, but I'm not afraid to admit when I'm wrong. Many of you reminded me last week that Statler and Wardorf were not from Sesame Street, but they're from the Muppets. Everything else I stand by. Uh, that was the one that you guys fixated on. So just so you know, don't always trust Google. There you go. I remember the cranky guys from the balcony. I just didn't remember what show they were on. It was 40 years ago. Forgive me. All right. Uh, so let's jump into 1 Timothy. Now we got that out of the way. All right. So we're continuing on in chapter 4. And uh, if you're here for the first time, we welcome you. And you're in the middle of our series in 1 Timothy. And so last week um, was a warning against man-made religion. And so once you identify the harmful weight that legalism and asceticism adds to the gospel, you are free to enjoy the gifts of your God, who is your creator and your savior. And you're free to walk unhindered uh, with the goal of not just walking, but running. As we read this morning in Isaiah, flying. So we're transitioning in the text. Last week was a discerning of godliness. What is true godliness? Is it the standard that God sets out? Or is it a man-made religion that adds on to and tries to improve on what God has done through Jesus Christ? And so we're, we're transitioning from discerning godliness to now this week will be applying godliness. So the transition from the warning to this is a bit more like a boot camp leading into a pep rally. Uh, so this is going to be a much different tone than last week. And in this text, we want to promote enjoyment and fervor in our striving in the Lord. There is good striving, there is good toil, and we're going to talk about that this week. Um, But I want to begin here and I want to end here with this question. Do you struggle to thrive and abound in God's grace? Do you find the Christian life arduous or hard Does the finished work of Christ that we defended last week, do you realize that his work gives you the ability and the energy to run the race that he has called you to? And that's why defending the gospel is so important. I want you to see this morning that in this Christian life, in this Christian walk, this Christian race, he is our hope now and forevermore. And so we'll look at both of those aspects. But I want to use this quote from John Bunyan, which I think I've used before, but I love it. um, Because it so greatly contrasts the text from last week and the text from this this week with the Christian life. John Bunyan, he he talks about the man-made religion. This is what legalism So this is what the law commanded of Israel, but this is what those who try to hold on to legalism and live by the law now are promoting. He says, speaking to himself here, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Today, we're going to talk about those wings that we read from earlier in Isaiah 40 
and I want to bring them to your attention. Isaiah 40, just the last three verses of that chapter. And it so perfectly ties together God, our creator. He's created all things. There's nothing outside of his reach. And if you are faithful, if you are his, this is what he does for you. Isaiah 40, picking up in verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. As pastors, that is our desire for this church that we run and not grow weary because it is the Lord who is our strength, who causes us to run and continues us on our race until he takes us home. So let's read our text in 1 Timothy, and uh, then I will pray for us and we'll jump in. 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of faith and in a good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray. O Lord our God, you are the true and living God. In fact, there is no other. All the so-called gods are man-made. They are made by hands. They can't answer. They can't respond. They do not live. They are, in fact, dead. But Lord, how often do we create idols and look for life in things that are dead and cannot give life? Lord, forgive us when we strive in our own strength, when we try to earn or maintain our salvation apart from you, Lord, cause your people to rest in you so that we can run in you. Just pray for the body this morning that your spirit would speak through your word, convict us of our sin, but most importantly, encourage us in the righteousness of Christ. Encourage us in the word. And if there be anyone here this morning who does not know you, May the joy of this gospel so overwhelm them that they surrender their hard hearts to you, that you draw them to yourself, that they may turn and live and join the race with the faithful, join the race with the saints throughout all the ages who run because Jesus Christ, our Savior, went before us and in our place. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So picking up in verse 6, this, these two little words, these things, these in the Greek, uh, appear several times. And so Paul's kind of using this, this um, 
just a, an open-ended idea. These things we saw in verse 14. I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to act or behave in the household of God. We'll see it next week in verse 11. Command and teach these things of chapter 4. And so Paul's basically saying, this is authoritative scripture. The doctrine I'm giving you, the practice I'm giving you, this is for your benefit as pastor and for the entire church. These things, everything, what is to come before and what is to come after, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant. So before we go any further, I want to talk about brothers for a moment. Notice this is Paul's motivation. He is having a family conversation because he loves the body of Christ. If you put this before the brothers, this is Paul's motivation. This is the family of God. These things are good because it builds up a family. It builds us up in love. It it, it unifies us. This is to be Timothy's motivation, that he loves the brothers, and that he's not on this on his own. He is not here as a one-man show. He is to take this doctrine and to present it to the brothers. And that should be our motivation as well, that we see the church as the family of God. And we see the scriptures that are entrusted to us for generation after generation because God does not change and his word does not change and the state of man does not change. So the application of the scripture is always relevant for his people. This is the consistent charge that Paul gives to Timothy. I want to look at 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, if you can flip over one more or two more pages in your Bible, he gives him a very similar pastoral exhortation. You then, my child beginning in verse 1, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the pastoral process from one generation to the next. You learn, you listen, you grow, you follow, you pass on to others who will be faithful in it. And they learn and they grow and they listen and they follow and they pass it on. This is the pattern and the desire for the church. And so in passing this on, I think we in the, the 21st century have this, this desire and temptation to always be creative. We're always looking for some new doctrine, some new way to do things. But the message is still the same. The truth is still the same. I'm going to steal an illustration from John MacArthur. I'm going to give him full credit for it because it's, it's great. He talks about the gospel presentation, the, the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the word of God is not the chef in the kitchen. We're not the ones cooking up the meal. We are the waiters walking the meal to the table, trying not to trip over our own two feet. And when we set the meal before the people eating, we don't praise ourselves, we praise the chef. Here's what our chef has put together. Here's all of the the flavors that he's blended. Here's the feast that he's prepared for you. We are just servants at the table. We are not the one who calls the feast or cooks the feast. I think so many men would have a more restful time in ministry and longevity in ministry if they didn't think they had to be chefs in the kitchen every day. What a blessed relief it is that I don't have to give you something new, that I don't have to be creative. 
I don't have to come up with something. That is why we preach through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because the chef has already given us the perfect feast. And my job is just to get at the table without making a fool of myself and messing it up so that he gets the glory, pointing back to the kitchen. So this will be one of our two running analogies, all puns intended. Um, The first one is as of a feast. So when Paul says here, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at deacon. This is the Greek word diakonos. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant, or it can be translated minister. So there is a a title. Every member of the body of Christ serves in some way, but the deacons are servants among servants. There is a title, an office for that official role. But really, if you're faithful with the scriptures, the outcome is what every believer longs to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus gave us two qualifications for how people will know that we are his disciples. We obey his word and we love one another. This is what Paul is saying here because he loves the brothers and he's got faithful exhortation for them. Love the church, put these things before them and obey the word of God. This is what defines a good servant. And he makes a promise here. If you do this, think about the encouragement here for ministry. If you just follow my word, If you listen to the instructions of the word that is breathed out by God, given through apostolic authority, you will be a good servant. There's a promise. There's a guarantee there. What an encouragement that it is not faithfulness to man. It is not approval. It is faithfulness to the word of God. You will be a good servant. Good servants are made by holding to good doctrine and applying it. And remember who we serve. This is Christ's church. We are his servants. We're not building our kingdom. We're not building a popularity contest around ourselves. We serve him. We point back to the chef in the kitchen. So you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. Now I think, I'm guessing here, but I think the translators of the ESV wanted to connect the two ideas of of training. There's two different words for training. We're going to look at the first one here and the second one later. But this word for training is a specific kind of training. It is a, a training that happens in children. This is to be brought up, to be reared up, and it could also be translated nourished. So look at what he's doing here. You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained. This is an ongoing, continual act of being nourished, being fed. The the, uh, picture here is of a baby taking, someone putting baby food in the baby's mouth again and again and again. This, this, This childlike obedience and this childlike dependence on milk, the good doctrine of or excuse me, the the words of faith and the good doctrine that you've been brought up in. And so as as we begin to mature in this text and we begin to mature as believers, you must be fed well, you must be nourished well to perform well. And as we've seen many times and again and again and again, our practice as Christians and in the life of the Christian comes out of our doctrine. We are rooted 
we are fed, first and foremost, the fuel that goes into our body is sound doctrine, the words of the faith. And so when we continue our analogy here, we can't feed a meal to others and commend it if we don't enjoy that meal ourselves. If we're not being nourished by the word of God, if our faith is not being stirred up by the truths of the scriptures, how can we commend this meal to others? You ever go to a restaurant and you're like, oh, can you tell me about this? Oh, I've never had it. Oh, I've never had it. Like, well, what good are you if, if you can't tell me if the meal should be eaten or not? We should be able to commend the meal. I have tasted it, and it is good. It has fed me day after day. It nourishes me every morning, every evening, all throughout the day. And if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant. Because you are being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. All good servants must be students. I love how John Stott says this. All the best teachers have themselves remained students. Disciples never outgrow the master, not our master. We are always learning. We are always following. This is the pattern in the church. Follow me as I follow Christ. We are always following him because he is always first and foremost. And so that is part of this, this picture. I think another problem with a lot of pastors and some Christians think that they've outgrown obedience. Well, I did those things when I was younger. I, I followed Christ before. I've graduated beyond that. We do not graduate beyond following Christ. And Timothy is encouraged to continue following. That's what makes him a good servant. And in that, we train, we nourish, we follow Christ, and then those who come along behind them, we nourish them the way we were nourished. We begin with spoon feeding, and then we cut up the food, and then we let them eat for themselves. We teach them how to crawl, and then how to walk, and then how to run. And so how do we maintain that? How do we continue in this, this training how do we keep up this faithful servanthood in the Christian life? Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So let's begin there. With what is irreverent, so those things that are profane or against God, and silly myths, um, the ESV missed the insult here. This is literally of old women. That's what the, it's silly myths. It is myths of old women. This kind of picture of a group of women just sitting around telling old wives' tales and, you know, these, these kind of vain superstitions. Avoid them, have nothing to do with them. The speculation that we saw in chapter one. Look at chapter one. This is the first issue right out of the gate in 1 Timothy. Verse three. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make confident assertions. So let's continue our analogy here. So you are a waiter in the feast of the king, the living God has set before you the best meats and cheeses and wines and bread. And these silly myths are the theological equivalent of candy corn. How ridiculous is that? How silly is that? That the master of the feast gives you the best of everything. And when he's done presenting the feast, you know, normally you go out to eat, and they present you the feast, and they're like, oh, would you like to see the wine menu? And you come out, like, would you like to see the candy menu? Like, I know you've had this amazing meal, but I've got this vintage bit of honey that would be really good with this. That's what adding our own works to the gospel is. It is a sugar rush for a moment. We get this jolt, look what I did, look what I contributed, and it fizzles out because it's empty and it has no nourishment. Christ is the feast. He has presented us everything that we need. We just need to present him unapologetically and unadulterated. But how often do we try to jazz it up and try to make it creative and look at all these other things that I have added to it? Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths fit for old women. Put away worthless things, spiritual junk food that's going to hinder your race. And just as you must learn to train as a child and be nourished with a healthy diet, then you can move on to train as an athlete. That's where Paul goes next. He says, I have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, as a contrast here, train yourself. Here's the other word for training in godliness. Sanctification is spiritual fitness. You replace the unhealthy practices with healthy ones. Every athlete is concerned with diet and exercise. That's how you become proficient at your craft. So is every spiritual athlete. And so when Paul uses the word training here, it's the Greek root from where we get gymnasium or gymnastics. It is the training of, in athletics, the physical discipline of athletes. And if you don't know much about Greek culture, the Olympic Games that, that we have and the Ithmusian Games and much of what we do for sport now began in ancient Greece, and it was a part of their daily life. What's a little different is that the men used to strip naked, and they would train in the public square with no clothes on, so that they'd be completely unhindered in what they do. And so this word in the Greek has the sense of train unhindered. Train naked, basically. We're going to do that spiritually, not literally. Um, but that's the idea. Train yourself without any hindrances. You know, all our runners were, you know, they, they, they didn't have lycra and spandex and all the, the uh, you know, wind-efficient clothing. They just ran naked. But the idea is you strip off everything unnecessary to complete unhindered. And so here's our second analogy. Let's think about it. As we train, as athletes, as we run the race, and you think about... Olympic competition. Let's be clear on something. We do not train to get into the race. This is not the 
Olympics where you, where you need to qualify first. I think that's how many people treat the Christian life. If you minimize the work of Christ and exalt your own work, you think I'm working, I'm training so that I can get in the race so that God can be pleased with me. That is works-based righteousness and works-based salvation. Here's the difference. Christ has already paid our entrance fee. It is Christ who puts us at the starting line. He is the one who makes us able to run and he promises that we will finish. So that Everything that we do, we run well knowing that even if I struggle, his strength will maybe continue, and I will run sprinting through the tape at the end of the race. Praise God that the Christian life is not how, like how I feel about running. I hate running. David used to text me. He's like, oh, I'm just running 27 miles for fun. Uh, I don't understand that. That's not fun. Um, but I know some people, they just love to run because it clears their mind from the distractions and they, and they uh, check out, I wish I could do that. But that's how the Christian life should be for us. This joyful exertion, this exhilaration of having the wind in our faith in, uh, face and, and breath in our lungs. And so how would you run physically, but let's apply it spiritually. How would you run physically if you knew someone else would supply all the energy you need and they would make sure that you would finish? What if we live the Christian life like that? It's true, but we don't live like it is true. What if we live the Christian life like all the energy I need to run this race? The Lord supplies. In Christ, he's given me everything and I will finish. He promises that I will. He promises to keep me to the end. He promises that no one will snatch me out of his hand. He promises that he has done everything needed to start this race and complete this race. Praise God. That's why it's so important what we looked at last week. We do not add works to the requirement of salvation, which changes the standard of godliness. The standard is Christ himself. That is all we need. But, as Paul says here, we do train and work in godliness and for godliness because he has brought us into our training. This is the, the beautiful picture of, in Philippians 2, how our work and the work of God works together. Philippians 2, I love this. It's a beautiful, perfect picture of sanctification. Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, here you go again, the love of the body, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, obedience for the Christian is not optional. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It does not say work for your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. It's something you already have. It's something you already possess. Why? For, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If we remembered that, the Christian life would not seem so arduous. I work because God worked in me. I love because he first loved me. And I work out of what he's done. And it pleases God. You think God is more concerned with his glory than I am? Absolutely. And so he wants to be glorified in us. And so we can work freely. 
We can work unhindered, spiritually naked, if you will. We lay off every weight because it's God working in us. It is Christ who has put us in the race and it is Christ who will continue us on in the race. And so when Paul says here, rather train yourself for godliness, I'll make up a word for this, God-fearedness. That everything we do and, and the uh, training in our race is for what glorifies God, what emulates God, and what promotes godly living in our lives because our eyes are on him. And I thought what we looked at in Acts 2 was really helpful a couple weeks ago. So in Acts 2, Peter is quoting from David in Psalm 16. Acts 2, 25 through 28. David says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For, I will, for he will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That is what it means to live for godliness. That we are so focused on our God that he will not abandon our soul to Sheol. That he has brought us joy in his presence. So we are free to pursue godliness because he will never leave and never forsake us. So how do we do that? How do we train for godliness? Same way you train as a child. The same word of God and doctrine and the, the truth of the faith that raised you up in milk in a greater degree now feeds you with meat. You continue to eat it in solid form in larger quantities. The same nourishment that raised you up as a young Christian will continue to sustain you. Just like every push-up you do makes you better at doing push-ups. And every time you read the word and study it, your theological arms will strengthen. But it doesn't happen overnight. No one goes from two push-ups to 20 push-ups in one day. But over time, you train toward these things and you look back and like, how did I start doing 40 push-ups? Because every day, I do five push-ups and then I do 10 push-ups. And the Christian life is no different. I think many of us get frustrated because I'm just learning how to crawl and I'm upset with myself because I can't run yet. Well, of course not. You wouldn't expect that from a child, but you expect it from yourself. It's okay. It's okay to crawl. Don't crawl forever. Don't be a big baby. You can, you can crawl as long as you need to. Learn how to be a child and then learn how to be an adult. You do that because of whose you are and who has put you into this race. Runners, they have a sponsor. You know, in sports, we kind of have the saying, you uh, play for the name on the front of the jersey, not the back of the jersey. The front of the jersey tells you who you belong to. The back of the jersey is, is your name. Too many people play for the name on the back of the jersey for themselves, forgetting that if you are in this race, you wear the name of your country the name of your king, the name of your, the name of your citizenship, the one who has put you in the race. You run with Jesus Christ on your chest. And so every time we take another step forward in the Christian life, it is in his name, to his glory, and in his strength, which should make us think of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, this beautiful picture of the race 
the one who went before us in our place, and then the ones who run, who ran before us, but also run with you. Hebrews 12, uh, coming off of Hebrews 11, which is the, the hall of faith, and all those who went before from you know, Abraham and Sarah and David and Samson and all that. Therefore, verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are that great cloud of witnesses? All the saints from all of time, from all places. We're surrounded by them. There's this, this uh, stadium picture here. You are running this, this race, but everyone in the stands has finished the race. Everyone in the stands is cheering you on. Everyone in the stands is rooting for you because they know why you're in the race. And his same picture, let us lay aside every weight, have nothing to do with these irreverent, irreverent and silly myths, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance to the race that is set before us. Now, that sounds like that's something we do. That sounds like something that is, is only us. But you have to keep reading looking to Jesus. He is the one who puts us at the starting line. He is also the one waiting for us at the finish line. He is also the one who gives us the strength for every step that we have in the race. Looking to Jesus, the founder, he began the race, and perfecter, he's working in you all the way along. Every lap, he is with you. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We struggle running knowing that we will not die. He ran joyfully, knowing that he would die for us. His joy was the cross. Our joy was union with him and being reunited with him face to face. If we look at him, if you think about Christ ran his race, he walked on this earth. His sole purpose was to glorify the Father through dying for his people on the cross. That was his joy. What does that do to us when we think about our running? Like, Jesus died so that I can walk in righteousness. Jesus died so that I can put these sins and myths to death. Does it make you want to run to know that your Savior ran to the cross for you? Does it make you want to follow him and that he took on flesh so that you would never die? He died and rose again so that you would have life and life everlasting. And you don't have to be the best at the race. You don't have to finish on your own. But eternal life is waiting at the finish line because he has guaranteed it. And when you look at this, you look at him despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is what we look at when we run. We don't see human suffering Jesus. We see fully God, fully man, glorified, resurrected, almighty Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God. He is conquered. And when we finish our race, he stands up as he did with Stephen and says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what Paul is energizing the church to. This is what Paul is calling the church to and reminding them of. And so he's speaking of this spiritual fitness here. 
But he goes back, and just in case you're, you're wondering, verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is in value every way. So let, let's look at this, some value. Many Greeks, like many Americans, their physical fitness was the obsession of their life. This is all of what Instagram exists for. People show you how much that they work out. And then there's those who don't work out at all. The, the, the Greeks would kick our butts around the block ten times. We, were, we could not keep up with them. But there is some benefit to physical exertion. There is some benefit to exercise. If you take care of your body, it will bring clarity to your mind. And it will bring efficiency to your actions, to your movements. And so I'd encourage you, exercise is good. We're not made, we're not designed to sit on the couch all day. We're not, we're not designed to be sedentary creatures. It's good. It's of some value. Especially pastors, one of the best pieces of advice I got early on is you need a pastor, you need some kind of physical activity. You need some kind of outlet outside of reading, talking, praying, studying. Get outside, do something. It's, it, it's good for you. Uh, here's what Paul says about that, specifically in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He's kind of putting together what we're talking about here. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So he's comparing you know, the, the Greek structure. Like, yeah, there's only one. Yes, there is only one first place. Everyone does not get a trophy. But in the kingdom of God, Christ is the first place. And if you're in him, his trophy is yours. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. We are running not so that man can, can see this crown on our heads, but because Jesus Christ, the one who conquers, he promises a crown that will not fade. So Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. Paul sees his life as a race. I do not box as one beating the air. This is not shadow boxing. This is not a futile pursuit. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself, I myself should be disqualified. We do have a responsibility to make sure our body does not lead us to sin. Our body does not hinder us. And so this is what he's saying. It's of some value. And if fitness benefits my body for now, how much more will spiritual fitness benefit my body for eternity. Paul says, godliness is of value in every way. That training is in value every way. When you work for the Lord, when you work for his glory, you build up eternal muscles, storing up a heavenly reward which benefits every part of your life. Yes, there's some benefit to physical exercise, but in spiritual fitness, training in godliness, it is benefit in everywhere, in every way. Your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Sound familiar? The first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Training in godliness is beneficial. It has value in every way. So that all of you is devoted to the Lord. Also, he goes on to say, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. These promises aren't only good now, and they're not only good in the future, but both. 
So let's have a little family conversation here because I think every one of us is going to struggle one way or the other. Every one of us is going to either lean heavily on this life or the next. Let me tell you what I, what I mean. I think for some of us, it is easier to trust and put all our focus on this life and apply the, the, the promises now. I mean, this is what the health and wealth prosperity is, is based off of. Have your best life now, which is silly because you set the bar way too low. But I think it's easier for a lot of people to be so focused on their job, on their health, on their family, peace in, in this life that they can't even see eternity. Which is, that is where we'll be for eternity. Then the other side, I think some people, we can set our hopes so much so on eternity that we've checked out of this life. That we don't trust or enjoy the Lord now. Here's what Paul's saying. This promise, this godliness that you are training in, it is great value for this life and the next. Here's what you need to hear from me. God is sovereign now and forever. He is sovereign over this life and the next. He sanctifies us in this life, preparing us for glory in the next, so that we are called in Christ to enjoy him now and forever. Don't feel guilty that you enjoy the things of God now. That's what we were talking about last week. Don't feel guilty that you long to be with Christ forever. Both these things are true. We are a people who live between two worlds. We have dual citizenship. We must walk in both of them. That's why we need wisdom. That's why we need godliness. But our God is sovereign over every moment of every day. And even when time ceases into eternity, he's still sovereign. And these promises, this godliness, Arnold Schwarzenegger cannot take his muscles with him. But if we build up spiritual muscles, we get to take those with us. And so that's why he says in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You can take that to the bank, Paul says, putting an exclamation point on eight. Training in godliness is good in every way because it gives us a promise of this life and the life to come. And it sets up the purpose of pastoral ministry in Christian life in verse 10. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. This is the end. Godliness is the goal. Our doctrine is the fuel. To this end we labor and strive. Godliness is the goal. Our doctrine is the fuel. We hold on to the truth of the true and living God, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, who went before us on our behalf. For to this end, we labor and strive. It's real work. It is real effort pressing on to the goal. And sometimes it is hard work. Oftentimes it is hard work. But it is always good work. The athletic imagery continues for all faithful servants. This is training that has eternal value. Not just for ourselves, but everyone in our care. Everyone in the body for this end, we toil. Now Paul brings all the church together. This is our collective race. This is our collective training. 
Uh, my favorite text on pastoral ministry, uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Paul used the same language there. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the pastoral ministry. That's the goal. This is our struggle. This is our striving. Paul says, for this I toil. But how does he toil? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Praise God we don't have to do it in our own strength because it's exhausting. Praise God that he gives us strength when we need it. And wind beneath our wings, if you will, when we need it. This exercise in godliness. Why do we do it? How do we do it? Because we have set our hope on the living God. My hope is not in my failures or anyone else's approval. My, pro, my hope is in the living God. If you set your hope on the living God, you can run and not grow weary. This toil is joyful toil. Because he's not like the false gods. He's not like the dead gods in Ephesus. He's actually alive. And he is actually worth putting your hope in. It's the only thing you can put your hope in. Because he is our savior. All these ideas Paul began with in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. He begins and threads this all the way through. We do this because God is our Savior and Christ is our hope. That is how we continue in this Christian life. And then it comes to one of the most difficult lines to, uh, to translate in the whole book. Or it's easy to translate, hard to interpret. Especially, so who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Um, no two commentaries agreed on this, but hopefully I'm going to help clear this up a little bit. Um, before we get into the meaning, what does this mean, that he's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe? Might bring up some questions. Let's be clear on a couple points. Number one, Savior. Often, Savior was a, is a common term. It has a general sense and an, and an effectual sense. What do I mean by that? In a general sense, God would call himself your Savior to Israel often in the Old Testament, but that was an indictment. I saved you, and you rebelled against me. You rejected me. Soter, the, 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 the Greek term here, was used often for the Greco-Roman gods, who the people would look to to save them from, diff from different difficulties. They would call on these gods as Savior. Moving on. Savior of all people. There's plenty of jokes but we need to define our alls. We spent a whole week defining alls. It does not say he's a savior of every person. No Christian believes in universal salvation. Paul never taught this. But remember, let's look back at chapter 2. We read this as all kinds of people. Same application here. First of all, then, chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. No one is beyond our prayer for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. We know that all people are not saved, but he desires all peoples. No one is above our prayer. No one is above God's salvation. 
doesn't matter how high you are or how low you are. He desires all people, every tongue, tribe, and nation to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Then this last, and this last phrase here, especially of those who believe. Especially could also be translated above all. It's a modifier. It accentuates what came before it. It applies a, a particular emphasis to what is being said. So Paul, this is a favorite of Paul's. It comes up often. I just want to give you two examples. Galatians 6.10. It'll be up on the screen if you can't get there quickly. should be. Yeah, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's a true statement. And especially in a particular way to those who are of the household of faith. Same word, same use. Back in 1 Timothy, verse 17 of, excuse me, of chapter 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul does this often to make a point. He gives one true statement, and then he gives a, a, a second statement that is above the other for particular emphasis. All right, so now that we know that, what do we know for sure? There is only one possible Savior for all peoples, for all nations. Christ Jesus, one mediator between God and man. That we know for sure. He is the only hope for all nations. He is the only living God. And all the other quote-unquote saviors of the other peoples are counterfeits. And so while they're calling to Zeus and Apollos and all the other gods to save them, he's the only savior of all people. There is no other savior. There is no other one who could stand in his place. Here's the other thing. All of their gods were specialists. You needed one God for many things. There were no gods who were creator, savior, and daily hope. You needed multiple. That's why there was a pantheon of gods. But there is one true God, creator, savior. I want to look at what Paul does in Acts 17, and then we'll wrap up for our application. I want you to turn there. Book of Acts, chapter 17. So when Paul is in the Areopagus in Athens... He addresses these people who have lots of gods. And he shows how no matter where you are looking, if you, looking, if you are looking for God, there's only one and there's only one, one road. So I want to pick up in the middle of the account here. This is Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the whole world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see this in here? There is one Savior for all peoples. He begins with creator, then he gets into Savior. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
He is the Savior of all people, and the command is repent and believe. If you are in Christ this morning, it's because you heard those words and you repented and believed. If you're in here this morning and you are not in Christ, you need to hear those words, repent and believe, because there is one Savior for all people. No one else can save you. No other God can save you. None of your works can save you. And if you think you're going to skate by, Paul tells what comes next. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is one God who created all. Repent and believe. Who do you believe in? What does that mean? It's the one Savior, the mediator, Jesus Christ. And he was raised from the dead so that you know if you trust him, he has the power to raise you from the dead. He has the power to save you to the uttermost. There is a Savior. This God who saves can be proclaimed to all people. He is the Savior in principle to everyone. But in practice, if you believe, he is your Savior. Those who believe he is actually Savior. And so we serve this God. And we toil and we strive in this race because he is our Savior. Amen. So, application. I want you to think about this this week. These last two weeks should show us this is why defending the gospel is so important. This is why we will stand on the finished work of Christ for our salvation. That he is our justification. He is our righteousness, our freedom. The full price paid for our sins. Everything that is needed to get in the race and continue the race, we gain from Christ. That is a great encouragement. (laughs) I think that's an amen. I'll take it. (laughs) Since Christ has done the work to save and sanctify us, we don't have to run this Christian life in our own strength. We don't have to walk in our own strength. We get to run in his. And I hope you take comfort in that. Because how impossible and exhausting is it to earn and uphold your salvation? We've all tried. We've all failed. How freeing is it to rest and run in Christ? So here's what I want you to think about this week. Just give you some questions, some self-examination. I'll give you a few moments after I preach to think about this. Where do you struggle in your spiritual fitness? Do you feel hindered by some particular sin or some silly superstition that you have? Where are you struggling? Do you, are you able to work in his strength because he is your hope? Or do you struggle with that? Are you still crawling in your own strength because you can't surrender to him? Are you able to keep your eyes fixed on him in your race? Or do you struggle with looking at yourself and everyone on either side of you and you fail to fix your eyes on Jesus? Do you maybe fail to be nourished by his word? Do you struggle to read because you don't really think that it has any benefit? You don't, you don't make time for it and then you wonder why you're struggling? Do you take comfort that your brothers and sisters are running beside you? Look around the room. If you are in Christ... 
We all have the same jersey on. We all run together. The same name is on the front of every one of them. But too often we run for the name on the back and not the name on the front. If you think, well, he saved you and you and you, and this is my brother and this is my sister, and they struggle. But as one of us falls behind, we grab each other and pull each other along. And as we sprint ahead, and then others see you sprint ahead, they're like, oh, wait, I want to sprint too to catch up. And there's this godly competition that happens in the church. Do you take comfort in that? Do you take comfort that Jacob, the knucklehead, made it to the kingdom of God? That Abraham, who was ready to hand his wife over, made it to the kingdom of God because he trusted in the Lord? David, murderer, adulterer, in the kingdom of God. Samson, I don't know how, but only by the grace of God. That great cloud is supposed to encourage us, and we have all their faults on full display. But most importantly, Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, he went before us, rose from the dead. Do you take comfort in that, that all you need to start this race and finish this race is what he's done for you so you can run in freedom? I'm going to give you a few moments, meditate on that, go before him, and I pray this is an encouragement for you, and that we all are a little lighter in our steps coming out of here this morning. I'll give you a few moments, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you impress upon our hearts this morning that we would look to Christ, our living hope. There is only one God, our Savior. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, teach us how to run well. Teach us how to run in your strength, not in our own. Teach us how to look to you. Teach us how to train each ourselves and one another in godliness. May we be a church that spurs one another on to good deeds, that points each other to Christ, looks back to the cross and forward to glory. Help us to throw off every weight that hinders us. Help us to put on his righteousness every day. He has, been, he has given it to us. And we walk in it. Lord, may we be encouragements to one another. May we guard your church against the teachings of demons that pervert the person and work of Christ. May we encourage one another in the truth. Because you are sanctifying us in your truth. Your word is truth. That is what we stand on and that is what we will teach and preach until Christ returns. It's in his name we pray. Amen.